me had I did that trick, okay? Because I'm not going to tell you. All right, I've, I've used that one for years now, and I'm going to continue to use it, and, and it works. It's the only card trick I know, all right? If you want more card tricks, you've got to go to my son. All right. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Joshua chapter 9. You know, I love card tricks. Obviously, there's a, a mystery to them in which some of you right now have probably tuned me out, and you're in deep thought, how did he do that? That's impossible. How did he transform that card? And, and I did not transform the card, I'm, but I'm not going to tell you how I did it. But there's like a mystery to card tricks that I personally enjoy. There's a sense of, of deception and sleight of hand. You see that in many games like football, okay? Um, and, you know, just amazing uh, ways to deceive. But how many of you were hurt by my deception in the card trick. Any of you were hurt? Uh, Donald, Stephen, okay. You can approach me afterwards. Matthew 18, if you're personally offended by someone's sin, you go to them personally. We'll keep it between us, okay. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, we will talk later. Uh, but no, um, none of you, to set the record straight, were offended by that. But let me tell you a time in which I was deceived and I was offended and got to deal that deal with that. But years and years ago, uh, I worked for a gentleman, some of you may know Mike Denny uh, out near Phoenix, Arizona. He's come and visited a couple of times. Um, he has passed away several years ago, actually. Uh, but he had his own uh, pest control business. Uh, it was, uh, like, there were like 400 some odd business uh, pest control companies in Phoenix. And he decided one year he was going to grow it. And he grew it to like the fourth largest uh, within six months. And that's just Mike's nature. Mike is very gifted by God. He's a Christian. Uh, I say is because he's now with the Lord. Um, very gifted businessman. And he, he knew how to grow a, grow a business. And he invited me on as one of his sales reps. And so I trained a crew and then had another guy go off and he trained a crew. But one of the gentlemen that worked in my crew, um, he was new to the, the group. We would go door to door selling this service. and. He, he missed a, uh, it was over the weekend is what it was, and he gave me a phone call, and he said, uh, Pastor Mike, I, I, or, or Mike, uh, I, I am, I'm in, uh, it's about four hours north, I'm in Flagstaff, we were in Phoenix, he's in Flagstaff, it's four hours, and he said, I, I'm stuck up here, and I am with my sister, and she had an emergency, he explained the emergency to me, uh, but I have run out of money, and I have no way of getting back could you loan me $300? And I was, I was asking him a few questions because I was wanting to know more about this. And, and, he, and I said, well, how, how would I get the money to you? He said, you could send it uh, via Western Union, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And here's how we can do that. So, so I, I, I said, okay, I, I tell you what. Um, Meredith was right there. I asked her. Uh, we said, okay. And so I, I sent him $300. I never saw the man again. Found out because his, his sister called me, that she was not in trouble, she didn't even live in Flagstaff, and that he was an alcoholic. And so I lost $300. Yeah, that was, you, you know what bothered me the most was not that I lost $300, but that I had been so easily duped into that. Um, and, and many times, you know, you, you, we can just say, well, I was just filled with compassion and I wanted to bless him. And the truth is, I really did not investigate the matter much. I just said, wow, here's an opportunity for me to share the love of Christ with him. I'll, I'll, I'll loan him the $300. I'm sure he's good for it. And never saw him again. You know, it's easy for us to, you know, love card tricks but we hate purposeful deception that, that impacts us in a negative way. The negative impact of much of Satan's deception, daily deception, is hurtful and it's harmful. And we can actually become subject to some of the, Satan's deceptions and start adopting them as part of our lifestyle and not realize just how, the, the very fact that we have stepped into his snare 
and that these deceptions are, have now plagued us and they're filling of our, our lives and, and they have tremendous implications, negative implications in how we live our life. And wouldn't it be good to, for, for God to be able to pull back the blinders, to be able to recognize some of these deceptions or some of these patterns in our lives that we're not seeing because we've been blinded to them, to be able to step back and say, you know, no more of this. I'm calling you on the carpet, devil, and I am not going to buy into your bag of tricks anymore, and I'm going to choose a different route. Well, today I want us to look at a deception that Israel encountered that ended up setting a precedent for them, and then the negative implications of that. And then, you know, how do we avoid this as a church? Because this is a very real problem that we face on a regular basis as followers of Christ. So Joshua chapter 9, starting with verse 1, many of you have as a heading the Gibeonite deception or something similar to that. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now when all the kings of the west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the eastern coast of the Great Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Remember, that's their military headquarters, Gilgal. They went there, went right into the camp. And they said to him and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. Now understand, Gibeon is only... 10, 20 miles away from Gilgal. It's not a distant country. This sea is the ruse, the trick, the craftiness, the ploy. He went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, we've come from a distant country, make a treaty with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, but perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For you have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Make a treaty with us. The bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now, see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that were filled with new, and these wineskins that were filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them, so the Israelites set out and on their third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the elders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the elders, uh, the leaders. But all the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that wrath will not fall on, 
fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leaders promised to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you while actually you live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, your servants are, were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are today. So here is a people, and it's not just one city, it's a total of four cities. And we are told later that Gibeon was not a small city like Ai or Jericho, but it was a large city. And they realized that they would not be able to stand up against the Israelites. So for fear of their lives, they chose to deceive the Israelites into thinking that they had really come from a very long distance and they wanted to make a treaty for them. They had probably heard that Israel had only wanted to come into the land of Canaan and settle that land and so, hey, you know what? We're from outside of that land and we just want to make a treaty of peace with you. Now, for most of us, we would think, okay, well, a treaty of peace, that sounds fine. At least we'll be able to rule them. But God had said for, for his very specific purposes, he said, absolutely do not do that. Now, I want you to keep your fingers here and. Joshua chapter 9, and, and go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Because this particular passage that we're going to look at, this particular passage is what led Joshua to do what he did and to consider what they were saying, at least initially the deception. So in Deuteronomy chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 10, and we're going to uh, read most of the verses to 18, because this is what's driving this, because we would think, well, peace is, would be a fine thing, but in God's eyes, it was not. Here's why. Deuteronomy 20, verse 10. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. Skipping down to verse 15, in the same context, he says this, this is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. So if there's a nation that is not in the vicinity or in the land of Canaan, you are to treat them differently than you are to treat the nations in the land of Canaan. Let me continue on, verse 16. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, i.e. the land of Canaan. Do not leave alive any that breathe. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites says, the Lord your God has commanded you. So this isn't the first time he's told them, but now there's a concession here. If the nation is outside, offer them peace, and if they accept it, great. If not, then destroy them, but offer them peace. Verse 18, and here's the reason why. Why does he have them do this? Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin 
against the Lord your God. And so for that reason, verse 18, for that reason, he said to Joshua and honestly through Moses to the entire community, you have to be absolutely ruthless when you move into Canaan. You cannot be led by this desire for sympathy. And in all honesty, as, as your pastor, I step back. I can't say I fully understand the heart of God in this, but I know that our God is just. And he sees things that I don't always see. And so what he has commanded them to do is both just and right. And it is actually loving. And so, it, it, I've heard someone share this, and I'm going to just quickly mention it to you um, as a possibility that if indeed, in God's word, it says that children, when they die before the age of accountability, go to heaven. The Bible is not really clear on this issue. I'm aware of that. I have a, a take on it myself. Um, but if this is true, then these children... In, in dying, would not grow up into the practices of their parents and be forever lost. You know, consider that. Because sometimes when, when we hear of something like this, and it seems like such an atrocity, so unloving and cruel, we step back and say, well, how could God ever do something like this? And it's because we have such a limited human perspective on it that we cannot see the divine perspective. So all we can say is, okay, God... Your word is inerrant, no error. It is infallible, it will not fail. And you are faithful and just, because it tells me you are. And so I'm going to believe that. So as I read about this, I'm going to trust you that this is wise. And as we see this played out, and we'll get to that in a moment, we realize just how wise it was. So the Gibeonites deceived Israel Joshua specifically, the leaders, and really all of Israel, by putting together this crafty plan, this ploy, that made the Israelites think that they were from far away. So if they're far away and offer peace, you extend that peace to them. So apparently the Gibeonites were aware of this option that was on the table that the Israelites could offer. I'm not sure exactly how they knew about this, but they knew that that would be very wise. So they pretended that they were from a people group far away. Joshua bought into it. And so they made a treaty with them. They actually conceded under oath that they would not put them to death. They wouldn't put them to death. That they would make this treaty of peace. And Joshua and the people felt good about this. However, it took three days, and after three days, as we read, we discovered that the Israelites find out exactly where these people are from. They're from Gibeon, not too far from them. And, and they're incensed by this. They felt so deceived. I imagine they felt even worse than I did that when I found out this guy was an alcoholic and I would never see my money again. I, I felt duped. I felt stupid. I, I felt, wow. How did, how did that happen to me? And they're upset. And they want to find out what is going on here. Because maybe they're leading a, a band, a, an army, that maybe there's more to this. So they want to dig into it and find out what's the truth of all of this. So they march to Gibeon and all of these cities and they're inquiring we just found out that you guys live near us. How is that the case? And then you, you remember, the Gibeonites said, well, look, we knew that you were going to destroy all of the people, and so we feared for our lives. What was it that the people of Israel wanted to do? Do you remember as we were reading? They wanted to put the Gibeonites, and actually when they say Gibeonites, but all the people in those four cities to death because they lied to them. They, in essence, were saying this covenant is no good because you lied to us. Well, if you look at the treaty, I am sure the treaty did not say because we live far away, we, you will keep a treaty of peace with us. It was basically you will keep a treaty of peace. So that was not part of the covenant. So in, in essence, that because that was not part of the covenant, Joshua said, look, 
we promised peace, and we're going to be good to this. Now, we know that Joshua made a wise decision. I want you to write this passage down. 2 Samuel chapter 21. We read in that chapter that there had been a drought in the land of Israel for quite a while. And David is beginning to wonder, is this the hand of God against us? And if it is, we need to get this right because it's, it's very clear that if in, in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and other places in, in the first five books of the Bible, that if Israel chose a course of sin, then God would bring his judgments upon them. And even so bad that not only would he bring droughts to bring them to repentance, but if they refused, he would actually, and they continued on their rebellious ways, he would actually send people groups from other nations to attack them and bring them to their own lands. Now, we know that that actually did happen when the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom and the Babylonians, the southern kingdom. But that was many hundreds of years later. So here's David, and he inquires of the Lord, and this is what God tells him. It is because Saul, in his zealousness to follow my word, which was not his word, but in his zealousness, he destroyed and killed many, many Gibeonites. Now, this was typical of, of King Saul. He was very outwardly religious, but his heart was truly not devoted to the Lord. And, and we could take time and we could actually go through the book of 1 Samuel and see this. He even put um, many priests to death because he believed that the high priest had, cons had led a conspiracy against him in favor of David. And he put together, what was it, 85 priests in the city of Nob. Then the tabernacle at that time was at the city of Nob. And David, as he's inquiring of the Lord, realizes Saul had broken this treaty that stood for 400 years. He broke the treaty and he made Israel liable to destruction, liable to God's judgments. And so David repents. God shows him a way to be able to make this right. But based on that passage, we know that Joshua was correct. The leaders of Israel were correct when they said, we have made an oath and we cannot go back on it. And so they could not just simply kill the Gibeonites. That would be breaking the oath. So they did the next best thing, and that was to be able to make them slaves. His solution to the problem was, you will now become our servants. You will always serve as woodcutters and wood carriers, always. Let me just point out to you that that David brought, that the tabernacle had been in Nob. Initially Shiloh, it got burned. Apparently it then went to Nob. And then from there, it went to Gibeon. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, we see King Solomon inquiring of the Lord, making sacrifices in Gibeon where the tabernacle was. And that David had actually set up the tabernacle in Gibeon and the Ark of the Covenant under a, his own tent in Jerusalem, but that Gibeon in that town, we're, it, it's become obvious that these Gibeonites are serving in the tabernacle. As you were to step back, and I just researched this a bit, we never find Gibeonites as they are worshiping other gods leading Israel astray. just want to bring that to your attention. <clears throat> even though Israel, I'm going to suggest two things that they should have done, even though they should have chosen a different course of action and they did wrong by this and they allowed themselves to be deceived, God extended mercy. And that's important to see here. Now, I'm, I'm saying all of this to set us up for something because this ended up setting a precedent that Joshua had no idea would become the downfall, the very downfall of Israel. That's how serious this chapter is. It didn't need to be, though. 
The Gibeonites, as you check throughout the entire Old Testament, never through their worship of other gods led Israel astray. It's very possible that because they were now called to be servants for the temple and the tabernacle of God, that they were so exposed to the worship of Yahweh and by priests who constantly taught from the scriptures that they were converted to Judaism. Very possible, but we don't hear of any Gibeonites who have worshiped other gods and led Israel astray, which was God's challenge why they had to put the people to death. So God stepped in with his mercy and prevented this from ever happening, that the Gibeonites would somehow, by worshiping their gods, lead Israel astray. What Israel, now let me just say this, what Israel should have done to prevent this was number one, they should have said to the Gibeonites, give us three to seven days. Something along these lines, something reasonable. Give us three to seven days, and we want to investigate this matter before we make a decision. And he could have sent delegates in different directions to find out. But this was, you know, these were just a, a small band of people. We have no idea how big the group is. Why, exp why, why expense uh, so much resources to be able to find out this truth. So he probably didn't want to do that because he would have to send delegates in various directions to ask the peoples uh, in, in, in Canaan if they knew anything about these people. And that would have been difficult in and of itself. Now we do know that in three days they did find out that the Gibeonites lived close by. The second thing that they should have done was they should have, and the scripture makes this clear, they should have inquired of the Lord. They should have sought God and allowed God to show them. And they would have done this through what's commonly called the Urim and the Thummim. The high priest has those two stones on his breastplate. And we don't know exactly how it worked. Maybe one grew warm and, or, or the other one, depending, yes or no. However this exactly worked, we do know that they would put their hand on the breastplate to discern the will of God. We have This is recorded to us in Scripture. And so the high priest could have um, made it clear that way, or God could have spoken prophetically through a prophet or through, to Joshua through an angel. We already have such an encounter, maybe through a dream. Any number of ways that God could have directed them. They should have sought the Lord, but instead, you know, this is a small matter. I'm not going to worry about it. And they got deceived. And I'm sure that, that uh, Joshua, it doesn't record this, but I'm sure that Joshua realized, wow, we blew it. God, forgive us. We've got to hold now to our word. And it's as if God steps in and he is merciful. The, the, the ramifications, the implications, the fallout of allowing the Gibeonites in these other three cities to exist uh, could have been tremendously devastating, but we do not hear of any of that. Now here is the problem. Something simple like a, a card trick, that type of deception is, is no big deal. Losing $300, the consequences are a little bit more serious, especially when you're newly married. Sometimes our sins set a precedent. And even though God comes to our rescue, he does not necessarily promise that he will come to our rescue every time we stumble into that sin. God, I imagine, stepped in with his mercy but says, okay, just make sure you don't do it again. How many of you have ever stumbled into the sin and you cried out to God, he was merciful, in essence, you feel, okay, just, just don't do that again. How many of you have said this to your, your children as you're disciplining them? I'm going to make the discipline light, but I tell you what, next time you do this, it's going to be really severe, okay? And, and so... God is extending mercy, but here is now the problem. Go with me to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 1. And in Judges chapter 1, what we have is Joshua has now told the tribes of all the 12 tribes of Israel, we have conquered the vast majority of Israel. We have carved up the land for each of you 12 tribes. Now you as individual tribes go into your inheritance and you fight the rest of the battles. You, you do, you finish this conquest. 
But here is the difficulty. And God promised, God told them, predicted that this would happen. He says, I'm not going to drive out the people all at once. Because if I did that and their cities were to lay vacant and their vineyards would be exposed, then they would become a, a place for jackals and haunts. And you wouldn't, you're, you're not large enough to be able to in, in, inhabit the entire land because it is so such a blessing. It's so vast and the resources are so much. He says, you're going to inherit homes that you didn't build. You're going to inherit vineyards you didn't plant, fruit trees that you didn't grow yourselves. I'm going to give all of this to you, but I'm going to, you're going to initially step into it, but I'm going to give it to you gradually. And this is what happens. As Israel begins to fight, their tribes begin to fight the peoples. God's word proves true. These people are stubborn. They're remaining here in the land. And Israel, without fail, makes a decision. Every tribe, it seems, made a decision. The people are very hard to get rid of. And it says, if you're with me here in Judges chapter 1, let me read to you verse 27 about Manasseh. Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shan or Teanach or Dor or Iblim or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they killed all of them. Is that what your version says? He wiped them out? No? Okay. Hang, hang on a second here. Let me... Okay. Here we, here we go. Verse 28. When Israel became strong, they, they pressed the Israelites into forced labor and never drove them out completely. Skipping down, the Amorites continued or confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Herez, Ajalon, and Sha'albim. But when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. Skipping over to chapter 2, verse 1. And the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal. I imagine in Gilgal, that's where God's angel was protecting them. He moves from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not break a covenant Excuse me, you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. It was extremely difficult for Israel to destroy some of these nations in Canaan. And so they gave up. They're trying to get rid of them. They're trying to attack them. Many of them had iron chariots in the plains, and that was an advantage. So instead of Israel saying, you know what, this might take a while, but eventually we're going to get iron chariots and we'll be able to oust them. And, and by that time, maybe 50 or 100 years later, as Israel has grown into their shoes, so to speak, that they would be able to take over the land, inhabit it, because God did say, I'm going to give it to you gradually, but they gave up. They chose, you know, why continue to fight? It's, it's costing us time. It's costing us resources. It's costing some of us lives. You know, why not? And so when they grew strong enough, instead of destroying the people, because it was like the people were stubborn. They were not willing to comply. They were not just surrendering. They were not, uh, they, they were fighting constantly. And so Israel said, you know what? We will just try and gain the upper hand on them. And we'll let them live in the land. And what happened with Joshua and the Gibeonites? Joshua's wise solution was now taken and it was applied in every situation. And God rebuked them for that. So instead of Israel being blessed, they opened themselves up to being cursed. 
I want you to go back to Joshua chapter 8. Actually, I want you to go back just a little bit further because there was a passage that I didn't read to you. We spoke about the fall, the ambush in Ai. I skipped a passage and then continued in chapter 9. I'm not going to read this passage to you, but I'm going to just tell you what, what happens. Because as, the, as Joshua is compiling this book, he makes sure that he includes this section of chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. God had told them under Moses that when they arrive in the land of Canaan, they are to gather, eventually gather, between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And they were to pronounce blessings from Mount Gerizim curses from Mount e from Mount Ebal and kind of like antiphonally they one would they would be sharing from one side and blessings and then curses from the other and they would in in everyone's presence they would basically be saying follow the Lord your God fully follow him fully and and we're going to read that in just a moment from Deuteronomy 28 because it's absolutely significant here but Joshua has a purpose for making sure this is included because what we now read in Joshua 9 sets Israel up to be cursed by God so that he says, no more will I fight on your behalf. You have allowed these people to live in your land. And if you were to read on in Judges chapter 3, the people in the land introduced uh, their gods to them. And it says two things happened. Israel intermarried with them and Israel began to worship their gods. This became so, so much woven into the fabric of who Israel was as a nation that even hundreds of years later, when David's on the throne, passes away Solomon, all the way down to where the kingdom divides and the northern kingdom has a king by the name of Ahab sit on the throne. Ahab goes to all lengths and he marries a woman from Sidon who worships Baal. And he introduces the worship of Baal into Israel. And it becomes a cancer that so destroys the, 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 the relationship of the northern kingdom with God. That God, even though he sends prophet after prophet to them, to call them to repentance because this worship of Baal was so ingrained and deep-rooted in their culture, in their thinking, in their way of every aspect of their life, God eventually sends the, a, a nation against them called the nation of Assyria. And Assyria wipes them out. And the northern kingdom is destroyed. And many of them are uprooted and scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire, way to the north. You may have heard the common expression, the 10 lost tribes of Israel. We don't know where they are. God so decimated the northern kingdom. But while they were there gathered in the book of Deuteronomy, he makes it absolutely clear. Chapter 27 are the curses. And then chapter 28, he says this in verse 28. If you fully Obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings that he's about to enumerate, all these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And he says things like you'll be blessed in the city, blessed in the country, the fruit of your womb, the crops, the young of your livestock, calves, lambs, your baskets, your kneading troughs, they'll all be blessed. I'll grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. Lord will send a blessing on your barns and in everything you put your hands to. He'll establish you as his holy people. It says in verse 11 that the Lord will grant you abundant prosperity. He will send rains, rains in verse 12 upon your land. And he says in verse 13, the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. All of these blessings, if they fully follow the Lord. The very next scene is this Gibeonite deception, and it sets a precedent for how Israel would deal with its future enemies. 
And as a result, the curses, not the blessings of God, come upon you. So even though God was merciful with Joshua and Israel concerning the Gibeonite deception, later generations followed this course to their own destruction. You know, it's, it's pretty simple sometimes when we allow sin into our life and we just say, you know what, it's, it's not all that bad. And before you know it, these, we can call them pet sins, they kind of just show up here and there. And uh, we don't really deal ruthlessly with them. They, they, they seem almost inconsequential. But it's what lies under the surface and what's really at the heart of these sins that eventually begin to tank us. Kate and Zach, uh, some months ago, left Rusty's cup. And it's a, it's a different type of cup. I'm not used to this type of cup. Um, it's, it's rather new. When my kids were young, we didn't have this. And basically, this rubber top here is, this top here is rubber. And so they, they left it there. Uh, it had some uh, apple juice in it. So I kind of, it was my duty uh, on dish detail that night. So I cleaned it out and kind of got the rag underneath this, this lip here and cleaned it a bit. And, you know, you take it apart and you clean it out. And, and uh, the next time they came by, um, we used it. Uh, they forgot it again. And so I just said, yeah, no big deal. I think there was some, there was some juice or milk or, or I can't remember exactly what it was. And so, you know, Rusty drank it and then I cleaned it out. After about a week, when he's coming over again, I, he wants water. And so I put water in it and he takes a sip and, and he holds it out like this and he hands it back to me. And I thought, come on, Rusty, you wanted water. And so I hand it back to him and he puts his hand up like this, like, I am not going to drink it. I'm thinking it's, it's, it's water. Come on. It's like, oh, this is disgusting water. What is wrong with this? And I'm taking it apart. I'm looking at it. It looks clean. And then I began to realize, you know what? I wonder how good of a job I did under this rubber. And I pull it apart. And there is stuff all underneath. And I realized I didn't take this off and clean it thoroughly. And the result is that over time, that apple juice had fermented. And when he drunk water through that, he could taste the fermented apple juice. And it was disgusting. And I agreed. I just, oh, this really is disgusting. And it, it, it went under the radar for me. I didn't know that that's what you needed to do. And, and consequently, Rusty didn't want to have anything to do with it. But I understood, you know, it's easy when stuff like this happens. But, you know, when, it's, when it has to do with sin, oh, that, that type of deception, that has more, far more serious implications. How many of you, if you had dentures, so we're looking now into the future, and you drop your dentures into the toilet, What are your options? Okay, if you flush it, you lose a couple thousand dollars. Are you willing to do that? Or do you call your doctor? Hazmat, whoever. <laughs> Find out how can I sterilize this completely? All right? And how many of you would pull it out? <laughs> Okay, you've got a glove on, understand? You pull it out and you'd rinse it off and then you would put it back in your mouth. Anybody? Okay, great, John, Daniel, okay. All right. Okay, you just rinse it off and you're good. Yeah, you who are raising your hand, obviously, you would not do that. Um, but you would probably figure out how can you salvage these dentures who cost you a couple thousand dollars, but you're going to be really ultra, super, super careful and methodical in your procedure and how you're going to sterilize it. Would you not? We wouldn't just rinse it off and put it in our mouth. Now, you're probably going to remember that illustration when you wake up in the morning. 
and especially any of you who have dentures or false teeth, <laughs> you're probably not going to go near a toilet for the rest of your life. <laughs> At least when you're taking them out. Okay, you follow what I mean by that. People, we need to be absolutely ruthless when it comes to the practices of sin. Because the devil knows that if I can just get a foot in the door here, and the door's a little wider and a little wider, before you know it, I'll have full reign in this person's life. Just a little bit here, a little bit here, a little compromise there, and before you know it, that is a regular practice. And I don't know, let, let me choose an example here. You're young, you are going through a financial difficulty, and you just think, well, you know what? My parents borrowed money. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just borrow some money here. We're in a crisis. I, I don't know. My, my parents can't afford it. I, I don't know how we're going to do this, and so we'll just, we'll just borrow some money. So you borrow some money. The fallout from it, you, ah, wow, you wish, really wish you hadn't. Maybe you even come to this place where you say, God, forgive me. God is merciful, and now he continues to bless your finances. Now, some years later, you have your eye on a nice car. You're tired of your rust mobile. Any rust mobiles here in the church? You're tired of that. You're just saying, man, I just, I just want a better car. And before you know it, this, this car you got your eye on, you have $5,000 you've been saving up, and it costs $5,000. Well, I, I can purchase this. But before you know it now, you're online, and you start looking at the better models. And now you're looking at the new models. You go to a car dealership, and you're thinking, well, you know what? I could get some credit here, and I'll, I'll, I'll purchase this used vehicle, and I'm going to borrow only 5,000. I'll put 5,000 down and I've got 5,000. It'll cost me 5,000. I mean, that's hardly anything. But before you know it, the salesman says, ah, but let me show you our new cars. And he sells you a new car that's five times more expensive. And you've put all your 5,000 down and you have a $20,000 debt you have to pay off in three years, maybe five. You're driving a brand new car. It looks awesome. And now another opportunity comes up. Your, stereo, your, your, your base amp goes out and you want a new stereo system. It's 10 years old. Come on, I deserve a better stereo system. And you could buy one for actually only a couple hundred bucks. But the, the what is it, Bowie? The, the, the brand, Bose, thank you, Bose. System, you see, oh, that is so sweet. And when you go into Best Buy, they play it, and it's like, this is music to my ears, literally. I love this sound, surround sound, and, and I can use it, but I can use it, not just listen to music, but I can use it for my TV, and this is going to be awesome. But it cost me $2,500 instead of $500. I've worked hard. I deserve this. And so you put a few hundred down, and you borrow the rest. And before you know it, you have laid down a pattern of your life. And I have met people like this, know someone very personally. When she got married, her husband found out that she was in debt. Now, this young lady was in such debt because she had acquired this practice of borrowing, not just for a crisis, but now because I want that she had three credit cards maxed out and creditors, now that she is married, knocking on his door saying, pay up. He found out, they had a discussion, and he took her credit cards and cut them up. And he said, I'm sorry, this might sound cruel, but this ain't happening anymore. And it took them many, many years to climb out of that debt. I don't know if they are yet. But it took them many, many years to just begin to see daylight because there were thousands, tens of thousands, I think it was close to $30,000 of debt on these credit cards. And trust me, believe you me, the credit card companies were more than eager to give her another credit card. And some people have stepped into this practice that initially it seemed innocent enough, and before you know it, they're in way over their head in debt and it's become a practice in their lives. And I would suggest to you, number one, 
such a practice becomes foolish because it tells us that we don't need to trust God for our finances. I can just go to bank institutions and they'll bail me out. Number two, it feeds our greed and our personal cravings and lusts. Purchasing a $5,000 car, but I can get a newer one and it will, it will make me into someone. I've heard people say this. That the clothes they wear make them into a new person. You know, I know of only one thing that can make you into a new person, and that's the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Not some clothes that you wear or some car that you drive or some huge house that you can't afford. It is Jesus Christ and only him. So if you want something brand new in your life, try that. Try Christ. But don't buy into the, the, the deceptions of the world. It feeds the flesh. And then now, God is no longer able to use finances as a way to lead you. Now, I don't know about you, but God has led me to many, way, many, many, I believe, wise decisions. God, you want us to purchase this, but the finances weren't there, so we said no. And we've just had a firm policy from the get-go when we were married. We're not going to borrow money like that. We're just not going to do that. And, and I can tell you to this day, God has blessed us financially. He's blessed us. You know, we could talk about so many other things. We could talk about anger. You know, the first time that we truly get angry at our kids, we step back and say, wow, they ended up obeying me. And we get duped into this belief for my kids to obey me, I have to raise my voice and I have to threaten them and I have to count to three, all right? And, and I, if I don't count to three, they just never seem to obey me. We don't train them first-time obedience. We train them third-time obedience. I don't have to obey mom and dad right now because they're not angry. But when they're angry, when mom starts counting to three, I need to make sure that by the time she hits two and a half, you ever done that one? Two and a half, I better obey. And if I do, I'm okay. And this is what we've really trained our children to do. But you know, as, as we raise our voice and we yell and even belittle, the more we really give it to them verbally, it seems they're complying, they're obeying. And anger now becomes a tool that we use to get our children to obey now. But along the way, over the years, we begin to notice something rather dysfunctional. And our children, it seems that there's just there's this rebellion. They're constantly testing the limits. I can't yell at them as I used to because now they, they storm out of the house, they jump into their own car and ride off. And now this, the seeds of hurt that were sown as children erupts as rebellion in their teenage years. And many teens, they say up to 70% of teens walk away from the church, never get involved in the church. Now, I don't know whether they're truly born again or not, but they walk away from the church. That's the, that's the Barna statistic that's thrown out there. 70%. Church, at some point... We have, we, we've gone wrong, and in my opinion, as, as, as a pastor, and as I've looked over this, it is how we have chosen to train our children and the things that we have allowed in as regular practices in our home. But you see, this doesn't just have to be in our home, but in our individual lives. And so my challenge to us is this. What in our lives have we been fighting against? Maybe we fought against the anger. Maybe throughout our teen years and into our, our 20s, we finally get married and are having kids. We're fighting against this anger, and then suddenly, why fight it anymore? It's wearying. I don't seem to be gaining any ground. And then we just let it sit there in our lives. Many times, we give up in the battle against sin, and it just sits there in our lives and begins to incubate, even fester, and it grows. And before you know it, when you pull the top off, you begin to realize the extent of sin in our life, and it's eaten away at us. 
we can lose our children. And at some point, God has to break us and has to wake us and show us this cannot be any longer in your life. Ephesians 4.31, it says, get rid of anger. Not do your best. And if you can't deal with it, just let it, just let it go. Go on to the next problem in your life. No, get rid of it. Deal with it ruthlessly. Do not give up. Can I ask you, have we settled for partial obedience in the kingdom of God? Because Deuteronomy 28 is very clear. If you fully obey me, if you fully obey me, I will make you the head and not the tail. You will borrow from no nations. As a matter of fact, you will become the lender. You will be subject to no nations. But if you choose not to, and you let these issues just run rampant in your life, unchecked because you've given up fighting them. They will ruin you. You will be under a curse. You will, you will become the tail and not the head. And as he warned Israel and as he fulfilled it, nations will rise up against you and they will destroy you. This is a, a sobering word, I realize. And as we read through this chapter 9 about the Gibeonite deception, it's easy to say, ah, you know, okay, no big deal. God was merciful, but it set a precedent for them. And if you were to take the entire nation of Israel and the course of, of destruction, the path that they were on, it all goes back to this chapter right here. Because Israel set a precedent. They could have dealt with it and said, no more of this. But the next generation said, wait a second, maybe I will. Will you stand with me? I want us to really allow God to examine our hearts and if he's putting his finger on some things, allow him to minister to you and say, you know what? Let's deal with this. So I want to ask you have, you, have you given up in any of your battles against sin? It can be so hard sometimes, so hard, frustrating. But I'm going to challenge you, my friends, never give up. We have God at our side. And as soon as we begin to give up, he says, I will no longer fight your battles for you. And so I'm going to tell you, I'm going to challenge you today. Come before the cross. Say, you know what, God, I, I am needing you to fight these battles for me. And if I have given up, forgive me. But now step in with your grace. Let's turn to the Lord. Father, you are good. Your mercies truly have no end. You're faithful and you're loving to us. Even when we are rebellious, even when we have chosen to go our own way, even when we have allowed idols in our lives, many times unchecked, and they've turned our heart away from you. Father, you're just simply asking, Seek to fully obey me. Do not give up. In time you will be victorious. But lean on me. And so today, God, we lean on you. And where we are weak, your grace is sufficient. And your strength is made perfect. So in my weakness, and out of my weakness, I cry to you, God, Rescue me. Give me the strength to press in and to press on and never give up. Never yield ground to the enemy. But to fight with such tenacity and fierceness as Joshua and that Joshua generation fought and overcame and was victorious. Why? Because you fought their battles for them. God, today, fight our battles for us. We throw ourselves upon your mercy, God.
And in this, God, we know for sure that you will pour out your grace because this is the very nature and heart of our God. So today, God, we just once again, we surrender to you. Forgive us. Where the enemy has crept in, he's taken ground, we take that ground back now. And we stand in opposition to him. And we say, no more. You can encroach in my life no further. Spirit of God, rise up within us. Allowing no ground to the enemy. To face sin ruthlessly in our lives, God. And to cast ourselves at your mercy and your grace. Show yourself mighty on our, our behalf today, God. And as we make this step, we trust in you and re-engage in this battle. Level the enemy. Fight our battles for us. And may we walk in victory. Our hearts are yielded to you. In Jesus' name.